Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Morena, everyone. Hope you're having a great week, and welcome to this week's episode of Wikipedia. I'm Mickey, and today we are doing a deep dive into insulin resistance and metabolic health with Associate Professor Dr. Benjamin Bickman. Anyone who's interested in low carb and insulin and metabolic health will no doubt be familiar with Associate Professor Benjamin Bickman. He is is a professor uh, of physiology and developmental biology at Brigham Young University in Utah and his research lab is really interested in looking at metabolic health and insulin resistance and looking at mitochondrial function and cellular processes that are involved in fat development. And whilst that is like super geeky and, and kind of sciencey, at the heart of it though, Ben is just so good at translating that science into everyday knowledge and how we can apply that for the general audience. And if you follow Ben on Twitter or on Instagram at Ben Bickman PhD, you will absolutely get a sense of that as he takes topics and really kind of distills them down into information that anyone can understand. Not only that, Ben does have a book and we talk about the the premise of the book and it's called Why We Get Sick and this is one that is on order for me from bookdepository.com and I'm really looking forward to doing a bit of a dive into it and this is what we discussed today on the podcast is the relationship between chronically high or elevated insulin and its relationship to chronic disease and how we might reverse that. He was super generous with his time and I really hope that you get as much from this conversation as I did with Dr. Ben Bickman. Dr. Bickman, Ben, kia ora. Thank you for being available to talk to me this morning. Oh, my pleasure, Mickey. Thanks for reaching out. This will be fun. Oh, I think so. Um, in part, mostly because I'm talking to you and I've engaged <laughs> in a lot of your content over the last few years as I kind of delved into this low carbohydrate insulin resistance space of which, you know, it's really interesting, Ben, I, um, I have a, you think you know something about something and then you listen to the likes of yourself and then you're like I have almost no idea you know I don't even know what I am talking about so well well thank goodness we're talking about the one thing I know anything about because (laughs) otherwise I feel that way about every other topic it's ridiculous isn't it when someone like asks me something nutrition related um Ben which is like completely unrelated to the things which I'm interested in which I teach on and I have no idea and I immediately feel fraudulent like I should be across everything and you just so hard I know exactly what you're talking about it's sort of the, the the this fictional patina of academics where people look at us and think we know everything when the truth of it is we usually know no more than what we just stated. You know, there's nothing, there's no more depth, there's no more depth to it. And no. yet we, we we hoped to exude that there's as if this deep, there's this deep pool of knowledge and the truth is always very disappointing. 
It is very disappointing. And let, look, let's be fair. Most of the time we use this to legitimize the time we spend on Twitter and PubMed, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and go, I'm getting True. paid to research my favorite topics. Yeah. And, you know, it's so interesting, Ben, because obviously you are... I, I understand you don't love being called an expert, and I only know that because I've listened to you multiple times uh, reiterate that on other podcasts. But when it comes to the topic of insulin resistance, there would be no one else that I could probably talk to that would be able to provide me with a more complete overview of what is known and also what is not known and what is supposed and what you might hear out there about insulin resistance. And in your head, just go, yeah. that is like, completely yeah. not the case. Well, well, I appreciate that. I would just say if there's any, if there is truth to that sentiment, I, I would credit the fact that I am a professor. I'm not just a scientist who is seeking to find answers to these kinds of questions, but I'm also an educator. I'm teaching undergraduates. And so I have that wonderful challenge of trying to take an idea that is important and yet perhaps a little complex and then find the best way to convey that. Because as I like to joke with my 20-year-old students, I have to compete against Instagram. And so I'm imagining at any moment, these, this class of 150 kids, their temptation at any moment is to pull their eyes away from me and look down at their phone or their laptop and fiddle around on social media. I have to constantly be kind of trying to pull their attention back. So I think if I have developed any talent in conveying these ideas, I think these little ungrateful undergraduates for helping me be better. You've totally perfectly described that student population. Ungrateful, uh, like <laughs> uh, no idea that they, they will look back in 10 years and go, my God, that Professor Bickman, Bickman, he, you know, really knew his stuff. But right now you are just some, yeah. dare I say it, bald exercise physiologist standing in front of yep. the class, kind of yapping yep. on about something, which to them probably seems really intangible and not that important. Yet, mm -hmm. as you so aptly, you know, describe in a lot of your social media content, this issue with insulin resistance, while it appears that there is only, you know, certain people who might be at risk or it appears to be quite a simplistic concept in fact it's so much more than that and so you know there are so many depths and layers to it right and just before we move on I will just qualify my bald exercise physiologist comment by saying that most exercise physiologists I know are in fact bald it's a bit yeah. strange. Well, we've whole... learned we've learned that there's just something wonderfully aerodynamic and efficient about it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's, for, it's great. So, okay, Ben, let's just kind of dig in, right? First of all, you didn't really start in this area of insulin resistance and looking more particularly at fat cells, did you? Like, what is your background here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, in fact, my background was my, my master's degree. So my first and building off of a similar undergraduate, it was exercise physiology. I was almost totally interested in muscle. And so at the time, I was interested in how muscles adapted to stressors like exercise and how they became better, bigger, faster, stronger. Uh, however, towards the end of my master's degree, I stumbled upon a manuscript that detailed this phenomenon where fat cells secreted pro-inflammatory proteins. And that was such a, a fascinating finding for me because I was, as many were in the early 2000s, interested in this, this twin epidemic of diabetes and obesity, that they always were kind of moving together. And, and, the, and it wasn't 
totally clear yet what connected fat tissue, too much fat tissue to a disease like diabetes, or let alone any other problem like heart disease. We knew that having too much fat would increase the risk of disease. And this study helped put in what I considered to be an, an essential piece, an essential mediator that fat cells were contributing to inflammation. And that then explained the connection to other disease like heart disease and diabetes. And so that kind of started um, the beginning of my transition, oddly, away from muscle into the fat cell. And so when I am asked to describe what I do as a scientist, I more and more say I am an adipocyte biologist or a mm -hmm. fat cell biologist. I am, whereas I kind of used to be a muscle cell biologist. I would study the intricacies of a muscle cell. Now I, I really study the intricacies of fat cells. So when I am working with my colleagues who also study humans, which I do more and more as a research model, they are getting muscle biopsies. I'm getting fat biopsies. I want to see what's happening in the fat of these individuals. So that's, um, that is what has partly gotten to me where I am, but I've left out a few blanks there or, or, or gaps, which was that the more I was seeking to understand how fat tissue connected to disease, inflammation was a part of it. Mm -hmm. um, and it is in its own right, but another mediator and what I would consider actually the more relevant mediator, that was insulin resistance. And interestingly, insulin resistance builds on inflammation. So even the adipose derived inflammation fits into insulin resistance, promoting the disease state throughout the rest of the body. But when we look at how fat tissue is connecting to chronic diseases, insulin resistance is what I consider to be the great mediator. Okay. So if we almost do a little 101 here, what is insulin resistance? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Insulin resistance, I like to say is a coin. And a coin has two sides, but we call the coin insulin resistance. And I emphasize that to help mitigate any potential confusion in describing the sides of the coin. One side of the coin is insulin resistance itself, where we have some cells of the body are resistant to insulin, insulin's effects. So once upon a time, insulin could come to that cell and get this much of an action. Now that cell, insulin is only eliciting this much of the action. So the cell has become insulin resistant. But importantly, not all of the cells of the body become insulin resistance. Some of the cells continue to respond to insulin with as exquisite sensitivity as, it ever, as they ever did. Mm. That becomes a particular problem in light of we flip the coin to the other side, and that is the hyperinsulinemia. That is a fundamental feature of insulin resistance in a body where insulin isn't working on some cells, that's the insulin resistance, but their blood, live, uh, blood levels of insulin are chronically higher than they used to be, even in a fasted state. Mm. So they chronically have higher than normal levels of insulin. And again, that is a problem because some of the cells of the body continue to respond to insulin perfectly, but now they're drowning in all of the insulin. Insulin is telling them to do too much, but they still do it because they're insulin sensitive and they can't help it. So it's the confluence of those two events, compromised insulin signaling in some cells, mm -hmm. but perfect normal insulin signaling in others and hyperinsulinemia. To look at those two, to, to consider those two together enables us to understand how insulin resistance as both of them um, results in an increase in the risk of virtually every chronic disease. 
Mm, so interesting. So with these two different cell types, is there something particular about those cells which make them more resistant and more sensitive or uh, continue to remain sensitive? Like what's the, I suppose, what's yeah, the Yeah, what distinguishes there? them? Yeah, yeah. What a great question. I, I actually don't know. Mm. Um, so, so for example, muscle cells become almost kind of globally insulin resistant. Yeah. Um, but in contrast, theca cells of the ovary, for example, don't. They mm. maintain very high um, sensitivity to insulin. And so I'm afraid I don't know. I can't, yeah. I, I know, I know what is happening in the cell to make one insulin resistant or not, but why it's happening in one cell and not another, I, I can't speak to. So interesting. And interesting that you bring up the thicker cells of the ovaries. So, you know, what does that then result in with this kind of hyperinsulinemia and the cells being flooded with insulin? Like what happens there from a health perspective? Yeah. In the case of the ovary with the thicker mm. cells, yeah, mm. it's a very specific pathology um, called polycystic ovary syndrome, one that mm. is relevant and, and most people would have heard of because it's the most common form of infertility in women. And, and very briefly, for a woman to ovulate, she needs to have a big spike in estrogens. And that means the ovary needs to convert a lot of androgens like testosterone into estrogens. That's a little known fact in both males and females. All estrogens were once androgens. Mm -hmm. It's just that the gonads, the testes or the ovaries convert a certain amount. And unsurprisingly, ovaries have a higher rate of conversion than testes do. Insulin stops that conversion. It inhibits the conversion of androgens to estrogens. So two things follow. One, she fails to get the big estrogen spike. It's a modest little estrogen bump, not enough to induce ovulation. So she fails to ovulate. Secondarily, she does have an increased release of androgens. And so she starts to suffer from some of the uncomfortable, I guess, changes that accompany higher levels of androgens, like baldness or facial hair, like whiskers and hair growth, or even acne. Now that the level to which the degree to which a woman will experience that depends, of course, on the levels of androgens. Some may never experience that, but nevertheless, at its core, even in women who don't appear to be insulin resistant, there is a demonstrable degree of insulin resistance um, that is likely the fundamental explanation of the PCOS. So interesting because, of course, and I may be completely wrong here, actually, Ben, and you'll be able to correct me if I am. In a male, if there's often this association between, um, and maybe it's not hyperinsulinemia, maybe it is just fat tissue, but as I understand it, a, a, you know, a man that carries excess body fat yep, is yep. more at risk of having lower testosterone, in part because those that testosterone is being converted into estrogen through aromatase. Mm -hmm. Is that have I got that right? That's that right? You got it absolutely right. And in that mm. case, that is independent of the testes. It's not the testes mediating that. It's, it is, as you said, the adipocytes. It's the fat cells themselves, which, which start to express aromatase. So it's this very odd way of, of signaling to the body, to the, in the male, the body, that you aren't healthy. Mm. And, we, and so the fat cells almost have a way of telling the gonads you're not in a healthy place to be fertile. So I'm going mm -hmm. to not let you be fertile. And, and, and that, of course, it does so by pulling those androgens like testosterone in and then converting them into estrogens. It's like, almost as if the fat cells are ovaries. They're acting like ovaries yeah. in the case of an overweight man. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when it comes to insulin resistance, you know, people who have obviously 
um, heard the term because it's quite a widely known term, but I feel like it's not that well understood. And in part because you often hear people say carbs make you fat, carbs make you insulin resistant. Mm, and that is mm-hmm. and, and that is the only, I suppose, discussion point around that. But as I understand it, there is actually a few different pathways with which we can become insulin resistant. Can you kind of talk us through that, Ben? Absolutely. Yeah. So while I will explain these, I don't think it would be fair to only implicate any one single of them. I think mm-hmm. that in every case, clinically, there's going to be a, convlu- a confluence of, you know, one uh, of more than one of these. So I think there's two ways to look at the causes of insulin resistance, what I consider primary causes, and then we'll touch on a secondary cause. The primary causes, I call them primary because there's evidence to support these, and I'll outline them in just a moment, at all three levels of biomedical research in individual cell cultures, like isolated cell cultures that we would grow in a lab in a little Petri dish, or in lab animals like the mm-hmm. mice and, and rats, or in humans at the top mm-hmm. of this spectrum of, of models. So again, these three causes that I consider primary, I call them primary because there's evidence to support this at all three levels. Mm. cells, rodents, humans. The first one, in no particular order, is inflammation. When there are, when there's an increase in these inflammatory pathways within a cell, which is typically activated by things called pro-inflammatory cytokines, like those coming from fat cells, for example, inflammation will promote insulin resistance. Mm. This, again, has been shown to happen in all three of these biomedical models. A second one is stress. And the the two prototypical stress hormones, namely cortisol and epinephrine, those are insulin antagonists. They make cells insulin resistant. And once again, we see this in cells, rodents, and in humans. Mm. And then the last one is the one that I focus on the most because I think it's the one that we can change the most readily. And that is insulin itself. Chronically elevated insulin causes insulin resistance. And that sometimes seems a little odd to people, but it is representative of a fundamental biological principle, which is when a cell can, when there's too much of a stimulus to a cell, a cell will downgrade its sensitivity to that stimulus. Mm. It's almost like it's been a person who's constantly surrounded with noise begins to become deaf to that noise or any noise. Mm. The same thing happens with the cells in some instances. When a cell is inundated with insulin, it can become insulin resistant. And again, this has been shown at all three levels, cells, rodents, humans. So we cannot deny its relevance. And again, I focus on it because trying to address something as vague as inflammation, that's hard. A person might not know the source of the inflammation in their bodies. Focusing on something as difficult to pin down as stress could be very difficult. A person can't just remove stress from Mm. their lives Mm. or immediately change the way they're uh, responding to a stressful situation. A person can very, very rapidly and dramatically change their insulin by simply changing what they're putting in their mouths. Mm. And so that's the way I, that's why I focus on that variable more than the other two. Now, nevertheless, all three of those are what I consider primary causes. Then I feel inclined to mention what I consider a secondary cause. Not that it's less relevant, 
because I think it is very relevant. It just doesn't have the same caliber of research to support it at all three levels that I mentioned in the case of the primary causes. And mm. that would be, once again, a dietary variable. But in this case, it's the um, refined omega-6 seed oils. Mm. Linole linoleic acid is a fat that will accumulate everywhere in the body, but even in the fat cells. And it makes fat cells grow through a process called hypertrophy. Mm-hmm. A fat cell that is getting inundated with these fat cells will force will be forced to grow through hypertrophy. And when you have a hypertrophic fat cell, you have an insulin resistant fat cell. So and this is a fat cell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's a fat cell that grows bigger. Whereas yep, what, that's would, right. what, what would you tend, what would a healthy fat cell typically do? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So this is this allows me to introduce what I consider the actual origins of insulin resistance in the whole body mm. where it start, or, or rather which cell type becomes insulin resistant first. That's very much a matter of debate. I strongly contend that fat cells are the cells that become insulin resistant first. Mm-hmm. And what ha- when someone's gaining weight, they can gain fat mass through two different mechanisms. For a time, they will happen together, but usually one will stop and the other can continue. And I'll elaborate. So in fat tissue, when, when what we can pinch and jiggle on our bellies or arms or anywhere else, when it's getting bigger, it's a combination or a mix to varying degrees of hyperplasia and hypertrophy. Mm. Hyperplasia happens when we have fat cells getting a little big. And before they ever get too big, they recruit new fat cells into the area. Mm. And so hyperplasia is like a hotel that always has vacancy. Mm-hmm. There's always room for more storage because yeah. the moment those rooms are full, they just make some new room, new hotel rooms or new mm-hmm. fat cells. Mm-hmm. And never do the rooms get too full. They never get bigger substantially. In contrast, and this is how most people get fat. The overwhelming majority of people, including obese people, get fat through hypertrophy, which is when the fat cell number isn't expanding. There's no hyperplasia, which is more and more cells. It's that the fat cell number is fixed, and each fat cell is forced to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And that creates two problems. One is the problem of size. A fat cell that is getting too big will reach a point of maximum dimensions that it cannot get any bigger. And, but the hormone insulin, which must be elevated for fat cells to grow through either mechanism, hyperplasia mm-hmm. or hypertrophy, insulin is constantly trying to tell that fat cell to get bigger and bigger and bigger. The fat cell knows it can get no bigger, and so it becomes insulin resistant. Mm. And whereas insulin is attempting to prevent the fat cell from leaking its fat and breaking fat down, it becomes resistant to that effect and now starts leaking free fatty acids into the blood, also called non-esterified fatty acids. It's the same thing. So we have the insulin-resistant hypertrophic fat cell is now leaking free fatty acids. At the same time, and it's doing so to try to survive, it's doing so try to prevent itself from getting so big that it would literally burst. We have a second event happening in the hypertrophic fat cells, and that is as the individual fat cells are getting bigger and bigger and bigger, all of them, they are pushing each other further and further away from capillaries, which is you know the, the, the blood flow through tissues. And that, of course, is not compatible with cell survival. A cell must be close enough to the blood to exchange gases and to exchange nutrients and anything else. So these these overfull fat cells are getting too far from blood vessels. And so they will start secreting pro-inflammatory proteins. Mm. 
Mm. And some of them, some of them in an effort to increase, to, to promote the development of new blood vessels. In the process, it's these fat cells are leaking these pro-inflammatory proteins throughout the entire body, thus increasing inflammation everywhere. So it's such an interesting paradigm because when the fat cells are becoming so hypertrophied, they become insulin resistant and pro-inflammatory in order to save themselves. Okay. But in the process, in the process, they make other tissues of the body sick and insulin resistant. So if we look at this row of dominoes, insulin or the fat cell is the first one to fall in becoming insulin resistant. And then in so doing, it starts knocking down all the rest. And that's where we have the other tissues like brain, liver, muscle, et cetera, becoming insulin resistant. I believe it starts at the fat cell. Okay. And linoleic acid is one of the things which causes the hypertrophy of the fat cell. That's it. Yep. Yeah. And, and thus, thus contributing to the insulin resistance there. Okay, so question. So what is it about linoleic acid and those poofers particularly that can create this situation mm-hmm. outside yeah, of, say, yeah. saturated fat? Yeah, that's right, because saturated fat doesn't appear to contribute to that at all. Mm. It is entirely what linoleic acid is turned into. Okay. So one of the problems with linoleic acid being a polyunsaturated fat is that we, and we eat so much of it. In the United States, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's very similar in, in Australia and New Zealand, it's it, soybean oil, which is very, very high in, in linoleic acid, is the number one consumed fat in the American diet. Mm. So the average American gets more of their fat calories from soybean oil than any other fat. And the next most common is shortening, which is another seed oil derived fat. So another artificial linoleic acid rich fat. So so this matters. So linoleic acid is rapidly oxidized or converted into what's called the lipid peroxide. And the specific molecule is one called 4-hydroxynonenol. Mind you, there are numerous metabolites that linoleic acid can turn into. None of them are good. Um, and this is only the one I'm mentioning in the context of the fat cell, where 4-HNE, this, this metabolite of linoleic acid, prevents a process called adipogenesis. It prevents the creation of new fat cells. So if a body has high insulin and sufficient calories and it's trying to store more and more fat, you can store fat a healthy way, which is hyperplasia, but linoleic acid won't let that happen. It pushes it towards hypertrophy. It gives the fat cell no other option. Okay, that makes total sense. And you described with soybean oil that that's you're absolutely right. Of course, that American diet is in essence actually more of a Western style diet. You know, yeah, like we're yeah, we're yeah. not that different from what it's like in the states. In fact, I actually like to say nowadays it's the global diet because yeah. I've been around Asia, Southeast Asia. India, and it's the same. It's the same. In fact, even worse there, and even in the Middle East, it's kind of more prototypical American than even we are in the U.S. Yeah, so interesting. And the um, the 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 thing with the soybean oil, as you mentioned, you know, it is part of the whole ultra processed food package, right? You've got the fat, which is typically this poofer. You've got the starch, mm-hmm. and then you've yep. got the sugar, salt, additives, preservatives, yep. things like that. Does it act, would it act differently if it was just kind of delivered to the diet by itself? Is it the combination of the starch and the fat particularly that creates this, that makes this hypertrophy even worse? Do we even know? Like, Well, no, 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 we don't know. What a, what a wonderful question. If we can tease these two apart, which is unfortunately, I think just an academic 
uh, effort now because I don't know of evidence that has sought to do that. I think in the absence – so linoleic acid itself will have numerous consequences throughout the body, and I'm only focusing on insulin resistance because that's my focus. Mm -hmm. There are, in fact, other consequences of linoleic acid that are catastrophic, that are independent of insulin resistance. But I would say this context of the problems of linoleic acid, namely the growth – of the fat cell is really only a problem when it's combined with elevated insulin, which is necessary to stimulate the growth of fat tissue in the first place. As much as people want to poo-poo the relevance of insulin and just say, no, it's just purely a caloric um, thing, a caloric issue, I, I am unaware of any exception to this. And it might be an artificial statement to make because in reality, it just doesn't happen that way. But you cannot make a fat cell get big unless insulin is elevated. Mm. It, is, it is impossible. Mm. You cannot do it. And in contrast, you cannot make a fat cell shrink unless insulin is down. I am unaware of evidence to suggest that either of those conditions can be can be circumvented. So in the in the case of linoleic acid, I think you would have to have that combined with the consumption of refined starches, which, as you note, always goes together. If you were to eat the linoleic acid alone, Again, I'm repeating myself, but there would be other consequences. Hypertrophy of the fat cells probably wouldn't be one of them. But mind you, that linoleic acid does get it does accumulate in fat cells, and so once it's there, um, it's hard to know, you know, the degree to which it's there already. And if you are spiking your insulin later, even later in the day, mm. I wouldn't be surprised if you're still capturing the two of them together, even though you didn't eat them at the same time. Yeah. And the elevated insulin, as you mentioned, is the big part of the puzzle here. And this is probably just academic as well. But, you know, it's obviously we're talking about excess calorie loads as well with regards to having that elevated insulin. If you were to drop down the calorie load so it was hypercaloric, would it have the same effect then? Or is it, is that not even, you know, is that just ridiculous to even consider? Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, 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 I don't think it is. In fact, I think it would help if if someone is genuinely caloric deficient, yeah, they're going to lose weight. Um and and typically they're going to be they're going to do that. So if they're they're adhering to a let's say you have someone who's on a low calorie diet and it is low fat, high carbohydrate, mm. which of course is quite common, they will most certainly lose weight. However, up to 40% of that weight loss may be coming from lean mass. Yeah. And that is one of the problems of, of a low-fat, low-calorie method of weight loss. A significant amount of that may be lean mass. Mm. And only, you know, only half of it, potentially, or barely more than half of it, is actually a loss of fat mass. And that's because maybe perhaps the higher levels of insulin are defending the fat cell more than it's defending other tissues. Mm. Yeah. And then... In, in contrast, if you have someone who's adhering to a lower carbohydrate diet, they, I would argue they have a little more wiggle room in their calories because keeping insulin low, one, of course, it's going to facilitate the use of fat from the fat cell, but insulin also will alter metabolic rate. So even then, with a low carbohydrate diet that keeps insulin low, you can have a, a metabolic rate that's 300 calories per day higher than when you're spiking your insulin. And so that lets you, it just gives you a little more metabolic wiggle room to account for calories. Yeah, so interesting. Like I've, I haven't engaged personally in these, but I've seen these debates and discussions, but obviously I've seen them in the interwebs 
it's hard to hard not to see them this whole yes. debate around insulin and the importance of that and the ketogenic diet and and that increase in energy expenditure how meaningful it is on a kind of population level that is actually hugely meaningful like if you've got a massive population level to be able to expend 300 calories more you'd imagine that would make a massive difference to the overall health outcomes of related to diabetes and cardiovascular disease and whatnot especially yes i agree and i would just add especially in the context of someone who is insulin resistant there was a study done that looked at that question it's it's it explored the the response to low carbohydrate and low fat diets in people who were either insulin resistant or insulin sensitive. The insulin sensitive people responded well to both diets, low fat or low carbohydrate. However, the insulin resistant group did not respond to the low fat diet in a good way at all. They responded massively to the low carbohydrate diet. Mm. So I'm never, I never intend to tell people there's only one way to do this. Um, But I would say if someone is worried about insulin resistance, there is, in fact, a better way to do it. Yeah. And that is by controlling carbohydrates. I'm not saying don't eat them at all, but you need to be smarter about the one macronutrient that has the most significant effect on insulin. That's the one to avoid or to be careful with. Okay. So I'll ask you this question and I'll move back to um, some of the other things around insulin resistance. I often see debated as well, and I have an opinion about this, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. You know, people say who are very um, keto-minded that protein is also something that we need to be really mindful of with regards to its effect on insulin. Is it a particular population that might have more of an insulin spike to protein than others? Is it something that we need to be concerned about with regards to insulin? Okay, okay, yeah. Um, Yes, so there is an insulin response to protein uh, anytime. And then, uh, not in then, my addition to that sentiment is the degree to which protein will elicit an insulin response depends very largely on the underlying glycemia of the individual, including whether the person is eating carbohydrates with their protein. So if someone's eating protein in the context of elevated glucose already, or eating it with glucose, then what would have been this degree of insulin response to the protein goes up significantly. Mm. So protein and carbohydrate together have a higher, in fact, in some instances, significantly higher insulin effect or response than the carbohydrate alone or the protein alone. However, when someone's eating protein in the context of, say, a low-carbohydrate diet, um, then you have a modest insulin effect. It's still there, but... It is matched by an equal response in a hormone called glucagon. And glucagon is one of insulin's opposites. When insulin wants to tell fat cells to store energy, glucagon wants to tell cells to, fat cells to break down the fat. When insulin wants to tell the liver cells to stop making ketones, glucagon wants to tell the liver to make ketones and to burn that fat for ketogenesis. So there's a little bit of nuance when it comes to understanding the insulin effect or response to dietary protein. And really that nuance is, is it happening in the context of elevated glucose or not? Mm. Now, importantly, I feel compelled to add this. In nature, protein, the best proteins almost never come with carbohydrate. The only exception to that is, is milk. When, when mother mammal is making milk for baby mammal, it is high in all three macronutrients. 
which makes it the perfect cocktail to foster growth as rapidly as possible. So milk is a perfect food for growth. But any of the other instances of protein, um, and the best proteins for humans are animal-sourced proteins. That's an inconvenient truth, mm. um, but it's, it's real. Um, those proteins come with fat. Those proteins never come with carbohydrate. And so I think there's something about that um, where we ought to, whenever we're focusing on protein, we should make it so that we're getting it with fat. Um, fat helps protein digest better. Um, that's a little known fact that when someone eats fat, the, the intestines, the, we have this increase in bile acids mm. to facilitate the digestion of the fat. Um, but we also use bile acids to improve the digestion of proteins. And that may be why fat and protein together are more anabolic. They're more muscle building than protein alone. And that was very well shown in a, in a human study a number of years ago. In contrast, carbohydrates with protein have no additive anabolic effect beyond mm. just the protein alone mm. yeah no i've seen that as well ben thank you for clarifying that on the protein insulin front because it's mm -hmm. something which you hear quite a bit out there on the interwebs yeah um yep. if i come back to the causes of insulin resistance so there is a definitive path with which we can lower insulin and therefore improve insulin resistance through that avenue will low carbohydrate approach help individuals whose insulin resistance might stem from inflammation or from stress? No, no. But let me take a specific example. If someone has insulin resistance because of inflammation from, uh, from an autoimmune disease, mm -hmm. like, uh, then it won't help. So for example, um, there was a, a, a study that documented the rise and fall of insulin resistance with the rise and fall of rheumatoid arthritis. Mm. Most autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis will ebb and flow. They'll have active phases and, and then quiet phases. Um, and as they noticed, the rheumatoid arthritis was more active, insulin resistance was up. Mm. When the rheumatoid arthritis subsided, insulin resistance went down and insulin sensitivity um, improved. Or we take someone who has elevated levels of cortisol, either through a disease like Cushing disease or say something like chronic stress, that will promote insulin resistance completely independent of the diet. Mm. I would simply say, I would add only that why make matters worse by spiking your insulin um, with refined carbohydrates? I would just say, even though there's no evidence to support this, so I'm speculating, change your diet anyway, just to help as much as possible remove one of the other variables. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, you really do, and I've heard you do this and say this a number of times in your content, you really delineate between refined carbohydrates and those cellular carbohydrates, the ones which are intact cells of carbohydrate, fruits and vegetables, for example. So yes, in your opinion, yep. so you are certainly not a zero carb approach in your lower carb recommendations then. Yeah, yeah. So my sentiment, um, and it isn't just because I want to be polite and diplomatic. I do think it's quite justified. I'm not saying don't eat any, mm. um, it, but, but rather focus on fruits and vegetables. And in general, if a person just does that, they really don't need to make it any more complicated. I do think the moment you start eating grains, you immediately are putting in much more starch. And so you have a much greater glucose and insulin effect. And, and some people want to tease apart the fruits and vegetables and some are better than others. And that's true. I just think at its, at its simplest application, 
control carbohydrates by getting the whatever carbohydrates you are eating, let them be from whole fruits and vegetables, not juice. We eat them, we don't drink them. And then let put the grains and the other sources of starches and sugars at much, much lower levels. Yeah, that's great. Like I um I have clients and they are just scared to eat a carrot or a tomato or God forbid an onion, you know, because of those grams of mm-hmm, carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure no one ever got fat from eating a carrot. We um Yeah, no, or certainly an onion. No, I mean, that no. one to me makes no sense. I know. We in fact um been when I was an undergrad at University of Otago studying nutrition doing my masters, we were all um lab rats for the original glycemic index studies, looking at mm-hmm. the yep. you know the effect that a carbohydrate yep. has. Yep. That, that is that is Australia work. Yeah, yeah, it totally is, right? Um and look, you could have it was laughable how uncontrolled we were as as a group you know they would say to us <laughs> don't exercise but as a runner like and three other runners we would secretly do our runs and then you know and, <laughs> and we wouldn't do the same session every single trial like one day we'd have an easy run another day we'd have efforts we would not tell yeah. Tim our, our professor though <laughs> <laughs> and we were going through this is the thing what a wonderful context actually so Mickey what you're doing is causing me to doubt the veracity of the glycemic index <laughs> Because I know what was happening. I know what was happening behind the scenes. I know. I'm sure that you were probably like um, suspicious of that anyway. But yeah, no, this really yeah. highlighted to me just how ridiculous the concept it was. Um, and then mm. in, in one of the studies, in fact, we were supposed to study the glycemic index of carrots. But when they realized we would have to individually eat about two and a half kilos of carrots to have any kind of substantial oh. impact on our blood sugar response, they were like, Look, they might be students, but we cannot make them do that for that ten dollars an hour. Yeah, you couldn't. I mean, that'd be that'd be like a Herculean effort of, of gastric distension. You know, know. Trying to keep those down. Can you imagine? I know, ridiculous. Um, now something I want to ask you about, and I don't know whether you would be one who I imagine you would know about this, but you know, you talked about the different levels of evidence. You know, the cell culture, the preclinical yeah. rat studies, and then of course you've got the human trials and. And as I understand it, rats are particularly useful in looking at maybe mechanisms with which diet might impact our health. But are there instances where the rat studies cannot really tell us much about human health because the differences are just so vast, like in this area that we're talking about? Yeah, so I do. I, I defend cell culture and rodent work because typically the cellular events will hold true. Mm-hmm. So for example, if I want to understand the role of a particular protein in, in insulin resistance in humans, I can take cells and rodents and I can either remove that gene mm. that makes that protein, or I can put it in and make it work higher than normal. I can overexpress it. So that those, those models allow us to manipulate some of the specific cellular events mm. and, and thus help us understand perhaps the human problem. However, I think the significant challenge arises when we try to look at the effects of diet. Like, for example, when we're trying to explore, and this is something I do in my lab, so I acknowledge the, 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 the problems with it. But when we are, say, for example, studying the effects of, of a low-carbohydrate ketogenic diet in rodents, it is exceedingly – in fact, I would even say it is impossible to get a difference in ketone levels between 
um, animals, even when you put them on a diet that is 1% carbohydrate compared to a diet that is 50% or 60% carbohydrate, their ketones are almost always around 0.5 millimolar. Even though that other group of animals is eating 1% carbohydrate, their ketones maybe, maybe will go up to 0.8 millimolar. You just cannot push them into actual like ketosis that you'd want. You can't really differentiate them because even the control animals eating a high carbohydrate diet, they're always hovering around 0.5 millimolar. They're always there. They're always in that kind of low state of ketosis. And, and if we want to get some daylight between the two, what we're doing now, you have to put the other group of animals, the ketogenic animals, not only on the 1% carbohydrate diet, you also have to give them ketones in their diet. So you have to spike these ketones in the diet. And now you can get a difference of say 0.5 millimolar and then say 1.5 millimolar. So the problem with rodent studies is rodents just don't respond the same way to macronutrients that humans do. Um, it is incredibly difficult to get animals into a deeper state of ketosis. Whereas humans can get much, much higher levels of ketones with a much more modest dietary change. It's like our bodies are just, we're more inclined to get into higher ketosis um, than, than a rodent is. So I would encourage anyone to always keep that in mind. Dietary studies that attempt to explore the differences in, in diets uh, or use animals to explore the differences or responses to ketogenic diets, um, it's hard to do that. And, and I would add many of the foods or the type of chow they're feeding the animals mm. is often just absolute garbage in order to get them into ketosis. Like, for example, having being based mostly on soybean oil. Yes. And then 30% of calories from sucrose. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I've defended the, the studies. I'm not defended them. I've, I've argued against the studies that I've seen that appear that the ketogenic diet and a, or a high fat diet quote unquote is bad for our health based on these preclinical trials because if you yes. look at that chow it is certainly not representative of what you and I would consider a well formulated ketogenic diet but it sounds to me like rats might not necessarily be a particularly good model just for the diet itself at all yeah yeah, that's right. That's right. In fact, case in point, there was a study just published with just within the last couple of weeks detailing how how ketogenic diets damage the heart and cause heart fibrosis, like actual scarring of the heart. And they based this on a rodent study, the and then they made vast conclusions, wild conclusions from the data. And and of course it made headlines around the world. Mm. Ketogenic diet will kill you from heart disease and destroy your heart. And yet there is actual human evidence that when you have someone with known heart failure and you infuse ketones into their blood, the heart works better. The contractility of the heart suddenly becomes more efficient. And there are multiple other human studies suggesting that during heart failure, the heart is actually seeking ketones to improve its function. And yet those studies never make headlines. It was only this study that was denigrating the ketogenic diet, all from really one observation from the rodents, seeing increased cardiac fibrosis. I don't know why that happened. It's a very interesting finding, but and I'm not saying we ignore it or bury it, but it ought to be considered in light of the actual human evidence yeah. that totally refutes that idea. Yeah, so interesting. Am I right in thinking that ketones are in fact either a necessary or a preferred fuel source for the heart anyway? Yeah, yeah. so... 
It, it in normal conditions, I, I don't know. I would. I don't know if it's preferred, but it's certainly a viable fuel. But in heart failure, in heart failure, there is evidence to suggest that the ketones do, in fact, become a preferred fuel, for reasons that are unknown at the moment. But again, to reiterate, the failing heart appears to, in fact seek ketones as a fuel, as a preferred fuel. Okay. So if I think then about neurodegenerative disease and um, I suppose um, epilepsy would be another one. And these are mm-hmm. actually completely different. Um, these are just brain conditions and completely different, right? But I, as I understand it, glucose as a fuel source then becomes it's somewhat challenging for the brain to use glucose and that might be partly some of the issues in and around some of these conditions and therefore they the brain again might require ketones to help fuel and this can help promote better brain health i suppose i've probably just butchered yeah what I just yeah said. no 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 I, I, I think you said it well so there are um seemingly distinct neurological disorders that do share a common inability to metabolize glucose well. And that includes epilepsy. It includes migraine headaches and uh, dementia like Alzheimer's disease. Mm. In each of these totally distinct problems, all of them have a degree of brain glucose hypometabolism mm. or an, in, an inability of the brain to obtain enough glucose to meet its energetic needs. And in those instances, ketones appear to be very therapeutic. It's almost as if the brain has this much of an energy demand. Glucose used to provide all of it, and now glucose isn't able to. And so we have this energetic gap that glucose can no longer fill. Well, ketones can fill. And that may be why in each of those instances, epilepsy, migraines, Alzheimer's disease, putting the person into ketosis demonstrably improves the outcomes. You could have a child with epilepsy who, as long as they're in ketosis, may never have another seizure again. You can have an individual child or adult with migraine headache, as long as they're in ketosis, may never have another migraine again. And that has been documented from the early 1900s. We have studies in the 1920s detailing the almost complete reversal of migraine headaches when when people are in ketosis. And then just this week, a randomized crossover trial in people with Alzheimer's disease, finding that when they were in ketosis, by nature of a ketogenic diet, they had significant improvements in cognitive function and quality of life. So the idea that the brain is sort of starving, it's drowning in a sea of glucose, um, that I think is justified, at least in those three neurological disorders. Yeah, I saw that study. It Actually, it was a New Zealand-based study coming out yep, that's from, right. yeah, yeah. from Waikato and um, fascinating. And in fact, one of the authors on there, I believe she's also been involved in research around Parkinson's disease and ketogenic diet, which again, another distinct uh, neurological condition. Then if I just shift gears a little bit, I've seen you talk a little bit about sleep and insulin resistance, but also thyroid and a low carbohydrate approach, because often you'll see that a low carbohydrate approach is not recommended because of its negative impact on thyroid function. Can you speak to that at all? Yeah, well, for sure. Yeah. So I say that's absolute malarkey. Mm-hmm. Um, There is, to my knowledge, never been a single paper published showing that adherence to a low-carbohydrate diet, even low to the point of ketogenic, has any adverse effect on thyroid function. I've never seen that. However, there is evidence to suggest or or to show that um, adherence to a low-carbohydrate diet lowers thyroid hormone. Mm. Now, some people have mistakenly 
interpreted that to mean thyroid function is damaged or mm. the thyroid is damaged. But that to me is wrong thinking. For example, when someone adopts a low-carbohydrate diet, very commonly their insulin will come down quite significantly. Maybe it had been at 100 picomoles, um, and now it goes down to 30. That's a wonderful improvement, and no one would ever say, well, it's because you've damaged your pancreas. Well, why then do we say your, your thyroid hormone has come down, and that's bad, and you must have damaged your thyroid? No. I think it's the same thing that we see happening with insulin. Insulin comes down because the body becomes more insulin sensitive. Mm -hmm. The insulin is working better, so we don't need as much. Mm. I believe that is directly analogous to what we see with thyroid hormone. Thyroid hormone comes down, and there's no evidence to suggest that there's thyroid damage itself. It comes down because the body is more sensitive to thyroid hormone. It's mm. just working better, and so we don't need as much. Yeah, so interesting, isn't it? Because often, you know, people say that about thyroid and in fact you know you have to marry up those biochemical markers like thyroid hormone with actual symptoms and what people are experiencing you know if someone's that's right thyroid hormone drops and you see other negative changes to to either qualitative or quantitative measures and and they they're showing signs of subclinical thyroid dysfunction or mm -hmm. outright um, problems then yes maybe there is something about their dietary approach, but it might not be carbohydrate. And often what I see clinically, at least, is that um, people who experience thyroid issues on low carb, in fact, it's might more so be low energy and low overall calories that might be contributing to this, not necessarily just that yeah. low carbohydrate state. Yeah, well said. Yeah, well said. Well said. I think that sometimes it, uh, thyroid becomes an easy culprit just because of other confounding variables or mm. other things the person is seeing or feeling that makes them think, ah, oh, well, my thyroid must be down because I'm just tired. Mm. Well, it, it could just be just as you said, you're eating less, you're not well hydrated, maybe your electrolytes are low. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so it's, thyroid has just become a whipping boy where people love to blame they love to point the finger at the thyroid gland, and I would just defend the thyroid gland and say it's much more hardy than most people give it credit for. It's not, it's not such, a, such a wussy, weak gland that it's, that it's subject to such small changes that we like something like a dietary change would be. It's far more robust, and so we need to give it proper credit. It's doing its job. Nice. Thank you. Um, now, if I go back to insulin resistance... How do people know if they are insulin resistant? You know, mm -hmm. what are some of those mm -hmm. signs? Yeah, yeah. So this is partly why I think this is a good opportunity for me to elaborate on why I think insulin resistance is so often undiagnosed. It's so often missed because we don't have in place the diagnostic focus or even in some instances, ability to actually focus on the problem. And by that, I mean, we always focus on glucose Someone goes in for their annual checkup with their GP and they always get their glucose measured and almost never will they get their insulin measured. And you need to really know what insulin levels are in order to understand insulin resistance. So on the most obvious instance, it is if you want to know what your insulin resistance status is, get your insulin measured. Mm. And in, in Australian units, so in the, in the metric units, Fasting insulin is, I would say, anywhere below 40 picomoles. That's a wonderful sign that the person is very insulin sensitive, mm -hmm. that they're doing it well. Now, in the absence of being able to measure insulin at a blood test, I think you can go as simply as this. If a person is, is chubbier in their midsection, and that alone is not 
evidence. I don't think it's proof. Mm. But if they are chubbier and if they have elevated blood pressure, mm. I would say you need look no further. It is I would be I would be exceedingly confident in telling that person you have insulin resistance because insulin resistance is really the big driver of hypertension. It is very rare to have hypertension in the absence of insulin resistance. You can, like sleep deprivation, for example, mm. stress can cause it, but most instances of persistent hypertension are a result of insulin resistance. It's so interesting because, of course, people think of hypertension and immediately think, oh, I eat too much salt. Oh, I know. I know. What a silly myth. Yeah. You can have, there was a fascinating study done years ago, and I show this to my students. It, it looked at salt consumption in Americans, and it split them up into quartiles. And the lowest group of salt eaters were eating about one hundredth the amount of the highest group. Mm. Or in other words, the highest group of salt eaters were eating over a hundred times more salt. And in the people that were normal weight, which I will interpolate and say that they're probably also insulin sensitive, mm -hmm. there were no differences in cardiovascular um, outcomes clinically. Blood pressure was the same. Heart disease risk was the same. There was no change mm -hmm. in their cardiovascular outcomes, even though on the high end, they were eating up to 100 times more salt. However, when you looked at this, these same metrics in the overweight group, the overweight obese group, now all of a sudden, there was in fact something about excess salt consumption. And I believe it's because elevated insulin inhibits the kidney's ability to spill off extra salt. Mm. If insulin is elevated, then the hormone aldosterone is elevated, and aldosterone will not let the kidneys clear out extra salt and the water that would go with it. And so the person is almost constantly overflowing with body water, mm. and that means too much blood volume. And if volume's too high, then pressure will be too high. Yeah, so interesting. And is that one of the mechanisms then if someone goes on a lower carbohydrate diet, immediately their blood pressure will drop? That's exactly right. Yeah. And then in people who who don't have high blood pressure, it's, they really need to focus on electrolytes then because yes. lower insulin, lower aldosterone, is that right? Yep. Get rid of the electrolytes. It's the body. Yep. And that has been shown I, from decades ago, I think, Within within the first couple of weeks of adoption of a low carbohydrate diet, the body will have lower than normal levels of sodium and potassium in particular, mm. and and then it typically will come back up and then stay normal afterwards. But um, but but there is always that tendency to be losing more electrolytes, and so I think it is always a point of focus for an individual who adheres to a low carbohydrate diet. You want to be, in fact, I would say, quite liberal with your salt. You, you want to be gracious in, in how much you're eating. Mm, no, that's great advice, Ben. Now, I understand that you've been measuring your own glucose levels. Is that or you have yeah. in the past? Yeah. Outside of carbohydrate, yeah. anything you notice in terms of what might spike or change your glucose levels? Yeah. You know what? This is a boring answer. And someone might think I'm, I'm not telling the truth, but, but no. Wow. Uh, it wouldn't matter what it wouldn't matter how much steak or hamburger or coconut oil or anything else I eat, my glucose would stay absolutely normal. Mm -hmm. Even in even even whey protein, where, where I would get whey protein with with fat, and, and whey alone is thought to really boost glucose. I never had any changes in my glucose. Only when I would eat, and not only all carbohydrates. I could eat a salad and I would have a very modest effect, mm. more to our point about fruits and vegetables. But if I have a bowl of cereal, of cold cereal, 
like frosted mini wheats or something. Oh my heavens. My mm. glucose levels will spike up into the high 100s for milligram per deciliter. I'm afraid I don't know what millimolar that would be, but a significant increase, you know, a doubling, almost tripling of my glucose, um, and it would stay up for uh, hours. Wow. So for me, it is uh, an ice cream, huge effect. So I'd, I'd like to say that I would only eat those things because I wanted to experiment, and it's not because I wanted to just eat them. So let's go with that idea. I was just being a scientist on myself. Um, so no, for me, it totally was a, a phenomenon um, that connected to how much carbohydrates I was eating. And, and the worst, the absolute worst I ever had was I ate, a, we were on a trip, we were driving a few hours away down to Southern Utah to go to the desert. And I ate a little box of jelly beans, mm. not so little. It was, it was decent, maybe the size of my palm and my glucose levels. I noticed about an hour and a half later, we'd gotten out of the car and we were walking around and I started to feel shaky and, and anxious and agitated. And I tapped my phone to look and my glucose had dropped to about 40, oh which normally wouldn't, wouldn't be a 40 milligrams. So millimolar, I'm, I'm afraid, I don't know, maybe That's three fine. or so. Yeah. Um, it would, but I noticed that the pattern as it backfilled my glucose, I had spiked up to the low 200s. So almost tripling of my normal level and then just rapidly plummeted. And that was such a unique phenomenon to having the carbohydrates alone. Because if I, I'm utterly certain if I'd had carbohydrates with some protein and fat, it would have gone up but it would have stayed up and then more gradually come down. Mm. But it was this enormous spike up, an enormous drop down, and it overshot and took some time for it to come back up. I actually had to excuse myself from walking with the family and go back and just sit in the car because I felt, I felt so miserable. It was such an unfamiliar sensation. And it started with that box of jelly beans, which was essentially pure sugar mm. that I had eaten. And that was something I so rarely would do. I so rarely will eat just pure sugar um, for better or for worse. It's often coming with different macronutrients. But in this case, it wasn't. And it resulted in an incredibly extreme pattern of, of glucose changes. Yeah, I know everyone's really individual with regards to, or I understand with regards to their response to carbohydrate. And for someone mm -hmm. like you, Ben, who as a, as a lower carb advocate, your carbohydrate intake is probably lower than, than say the general population. Yes. Do you think that your response to the jelly beans was unusual and your subsequent kind of feeling bad? Or do you think that a lot of people probably experience that, but because they eat those foods so often, that feeling bad is probably just a normal part of their everyday, how they feel. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I actually, full disclosure, I, I eat carbohydrates almost every day to mm. some degree or another. So it, it's usually just some, something around dinner time to some degree, not always, but I often will have some degree of carbohydrate. And it's, it's not really that I'm planning on it. It's just rather, or, or that it's intentional. My rule with my diet is I'm very strict with breakfast. I'm very strict with dinner, but uh, with lunch. But then when it comes to dinner or supper, I eat with the family. Mm. Whatever my family's eating, I'm going to eat it. If there's a way to keep it lower carbohydrate, then I will. If there isn't a way, then I will just enjoy dinner with my family nice. in that social time with my wife and children. So I think my response would actually be very common. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I know that sometimes people focus on the abnormal glucose response if someone's very strictly ketogenic. I'm more cyclical ketogenic, yeah. if anything. 
Um, and so I think my response would actually be quite common. But the average person would have sensed that drop and what they would have done, which I didn't do, they would eat more carbohydrates. Yeah. They would push it back up, whereas I just sort of sat back and let it work its way, it work itself out. But it was a very uncomfortable feeling. But that is what happens when we eat a load of refined carbohydrates. You are going to get that spike. And in some instances, it will drop down and rebound further than below normal. And that will drive the person in almost a panicked state to eat more carbohydrates, essentially setting up, setting them up to be elevated glucose and elevated insulin for the entire day. An excursion like that for someone like you, if that happened, say, every so often, is it a big major in terms of your overall health? Yes, yes, I think it is. And in fact, I might even say that it's, it's worse for adherence when people are very strictly ketogenic. When they have those wild excursions with glucose, there was a study published by John Little's lab at the University of British Columbia, where they found that there was more damage to blood vessels hmm. when someone had significant excursions um, with glucose after adherence to a ketogenic diet. So I think that those of us that are low-carb friendly or all in, we need to be careful in our indulgences because I think if we allow our indulgences to be these condensed significant moments of excursions when it comes to glucose, to use your word, which is perfect. I, and we look at that as an indulgence where this is my cheat meal and we go crazy with it. I don't think that's healthy. And, and so, now I'm not saying we can't have any treats, but maybe there's a better way. And I don't know what it would be than just looking at this sort of extravagant bonanza of, of treats and glucose and sugar in, in a very narrow window. I mean, maybe there's a better way to do it, but I, I don't know what that might look like. Well, I know what it looks like, Ben. I think it looks like hot chips and a beer because you've got the fat from the chip. Yeah. It's going to slow well said. down. Well said. <laughs> yeah, like, Foster's. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hey, Ben, look, thank you so much for your time. Do you know what? I've got uh, literally three pages of notes and I've got through <laughs> half, half a page, um, but I'm mindful of time for you. So I would love to chat to you and on another occasion and go into some other area because My pleasure. you're such a wealth of information and I understand of course you have a book which I've ordered on book depository which has yet to arrive at my house can you just finish up by giving us a little synopsis of your book yeah yeah well thank you thanks for mentioning that yeah the book is entitled why we get sick and it's it covers a lot of what we've been talking about um the reason I didn't call it um, the dangers of insulin resistance is because I knew no one would read it. And so I, I thought I needed to be I needed to be a little more provocative, but still be accurate. And so the the contention that I make in the book and and cite hundreds of studies to as a defense, is that to varying degrees, most of the chronic diseases that we're all afraid of, what I like to call the plagues of prosperity, share a common origin, and that is insulin resistance. And so the book basically, um, describes what is insulin resistance and why is it a problem? In other words, the problems that come from it, um, where it comes from, what are the origins of insulin resistance? And then it has that happy ending of what to do about mm. it, where I, grow, I go through some of the lifestyle changes, particularly diet, that have been shown to elicit the most significant improvements or, or deterrence against insulin resistance. That is awesome. Ben, where can we find you on the interwebs? Yeah, yeah. So I, thanks again, uh, I'm moderately active on social media. I try to do uh, at least a little video snippet on, of human metabolism on Instagram and Facebook. And people can find me there at Ben Bickman, PhD. I'm not as active on Twitter as I used to, 
but it's the same handle there, Ben Bickman PhD. And Twitter, just because it's such a hostile place, I just don't care for the the audience there as much as I used to, and and find the Instagram group a little more. Well, it's enjoyable. So I'm mostly active on Instagram. That's lovely. Ben, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your day and um, hope to talk again soon. My pleasure. Thanks, Mickey. All right, team. You might be like me and having to go back and re-listen to that episode again with some pen and paper just to really kind of get a good grasp of what's going on with insulin resistance but more so just make sure you don't forget a lot of those really awesome insights that Ben had with regards to insulin and metabolic health. As I said you can find Ben on social media at Ben Bickman PhD and you can find his book Why We Get Sick on all of those major book websites like amazon.com or bookdepository.com. I 100% recommend that you check it out. And you can also get hold of him through Brigham Young University website, bickmanlab.byu.edu over on the internet. And he is really receptive to answering questions and, and feedback and stuff. So I don't doubt that he'll, he will be more than happy to respond to any questions you might have on the basis of our conversation. So... That was Ben Bickman, and next week I have the pleasure of bringing to you my conversation I had with Michelle Yandel. Now Michelle is a health coach, she is a nutrition trained, and she is an educator in nutrition from New Plymouth, one of my favourite places in New Zealand, and she has a really lovely ancestral lens into what she does and her experiences and we have just such a great conversation so I'm looking forward to bringing to you that conversation with Michelle next week until then though you can find me Mickey over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin and over on my website at mickeywillardin.com where you can sign up to my weekly email where I do a bit of a geeky research dive into things that I'm interested in. You can sign up to a meal plan where I provide you with 28-day meal plans, shopping lists, the ability to ask and answer or to ask questions that I answer 24-7 through our online messaging system and join our Facebook community which is super active right now on all things fat loss, protein sparing modified fasts and diet breaks but on any question that you have during our Tuesday night forum and you can get the support of a cool as nutrition community as well people just like you who are just super interested in optimizing their health and well-being cool team I'll see you next week bye for now